From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. The death of an unhoused woman in Tallahassee gives a human face to the issue of homelessness. I met her a year ago when I moved into the neighborhood. And I was walking to the store one day and she was sitting in a chair crying. Also this week, could Governor DeSantis engineer a new direction for New College of Florida? The, a lot of the people at the school um, and alumni were sort of in shock. Some of the students started a, a Twitter feed to fight back against this. We'll also check out the possible impact of this past year's Florida hurricanes on the state's future building codes and discover just how interconnected Florida's underground water system appears to be. I'm Tom Flanagan, and this is Capitol Report. Later this month across the state, volunteers will work to get an estimate of the number of people throughout our communities who are experiencing homelessness. Anecdotally, officials say that number is rising, especially as inflation and housing costs increased. The point-in-time count will help advocates understand what kind of help is most needed. In Tallahassee, as friends remember the life of a woman who experienced homelessness, they say the answer to that question is love. Regan McCarthy takes us to a candlelight vigil for Betty Scott. Lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. A group of about a dozen people are gathered on the edge of Lake Bradford Road, just past the overpass. Blow up for Betty! They're surrounding the tent Betty Scott has called home for the past several months. Before that, she been on the streets since 2014. Evelyn Manning lives a few streets over from the spot where Betty stayed. I had to McDonald's first, and then I think she ended up to the, um, the Pat's grocery store right now. Yes. Then she left there and went across the street. Then she left there and went, came back across the street to the building on the corner. On the opposite side of Hernando. Yeah. Then she left there and was in front of this building here. Then after she left out, then she was under the bridge. And then under the bridge, yeah, she I ended up here. She, she says she brought Betty food at least a few times a week and always made sure it was hot. I try to get it again off the streets or go get, you know, take it to a shelter or somewhere. She won't go. She's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Lisa Ellis, who also lives in the neighborhood, says she became Betty's best friend. She says services like food or shelter or clothing are nice, but the thing people like Miss Betty need most is love. One thing to give food, it's another thing to sit and touch and talk. And I try to give her that touch, that talk, that, you know, I laid on the ground with Lisa says she's facing the final stages of liver disease. But she says caring for Betty gave her a purpose. I met her a year ago when I moved into the neighborhood. And I was walking to the store one day and she was sitting in a chair crying. And I stopped and asked her what was wrong. And something had happened. And, um, she was very sad and we got very close. Since then, I used to check on her. I would set my alarm clock for 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning, and 6 in the morning. 
to come down and make sure nobody bothered her. She says at six, she'd sit in the small wooden chair next to Betty's upholstered recliner, and they'd take their morning coffee together. We just became friends. You know, she helped me and I helped her. Lisa says she had her own struggles, including recovery from addiction, facing a terminal illness, and has often felt she had to fight those battles alone. Then she met Betty. Betty gave her friendship and love. She didn't judge. Lisa, come on, baby. Never judged. You gotta get in the future. Never judged. Yeah. And just two people for who and what they were. And that's what made her so special to me. Yeah. I can only speak for myself. Right. Um, she would listen to... Lisa isn't the only one who felt that love. As friends and acquaintances gathered for a candlelight vigil to remember Betty's life, more people stopped as they walked by, asking after Betty or sharing a kind word. One passerby learned of Betty's death in that moment and was overcome with tears. On a social media post about the lady under the bridge, more than 350 people have commented, sharing their own stories. And everybody hunking the horn There's so many other people that we don't know that know her. Later this month, the Big Bend Continuum of Care will begin its point-in-time survey. It's a federally required attempt to count the number of people in the community who are experiencing homelessness. To get an understanding of who the unhoused people in our community are and what sort of help they might need. Regan McCarthy prepared that report. Governor Ron DeSantis has announced changes that could transform a public liberal arts college in Sarasota into a conservative institution. WUSF's Kathy Carter spoke with Sarasota Herald-Tribune reporter Zach Anderson about the governor's plan for New College of Florida. So the governor appointed six new members to New College's board of directors, and it's not unusual. Uh, The governor appoints new board members to colleges and other state institutions all the time. But in this case is very unusual because it came with sort of the stated idea that these new board members are going to completely transform New College. Known more as a left-leaning institution, the governor appointed all these conservative board members, including um, high-profile conservative activist Chris Rufo and some others who have affiliations with conservative think tanks and take New College from what it is and turn it into something completely opposite of it. As you mentioned, conservative activist Chris Rufo is one of the governor's appointees. What more can you tell us about him? So he's probably the most famous person that the governor has appointed. He's really become prominent in the new conservative culture wars. He has gone after institutions over transgender issues, critical race theory. He's gotten attention on Fox News and other conservative media outlets. The governor tapped him when he signed House Bill 1557, the Parental Rights and Education Act, also known by critics as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Chris Rufo was with the governor during that bill signing. He's very active on social media and has really gone after all sorts of institutions over policies that he disagrees with. One of the other appointees is a dean at Conservative Hillsdale College, which the governor has said he wants to model new college after. What can you tell us about Hillsdale College? Hillsdale is a small, private Christian college in Michigan that really has outsized influence in sort of conservative circles for its uh, education 
agenda. The president of the college uh, is sort of aligned with DeSantis and with Trump. They've created a, a network of charter schools. They are really uh, plugged in and in pushing a more conservative agenda. And again, would be a complete transformation of New College into something very, very different and really would fundamentally change the school. What are you hearing from students, alumni, faculty about the changes? I think a lot of the people at the school um, and alumni were sort of in shock. Some of the students started a, a Twitter feed to fight back against this. The gender studies professor there was very quick to defend her discipline as being a mainstream discipline. These are the types of disciplines that I think some of the school worry are going to be targeted because conservatives have targeted disciplines such as gender studies in the past. Uh, So she kind of said that, you know, hopefully uh, this will will be accepted because, you know, it is a, a curriculum that colleges all over the country have, and it's been in existence for decades. So I think there's a lot of trepidation about what's happening amongst the faculty. A number of faculty members that I spoke to did not want to talk on the record, but we're uh, hearing more and more uh, as this uh, unfolds. And Zach, New College of Florida is a public institution. Have we heard from local state lawmakers about the new direction? So Sarasota and Manatee counties are Republican-leaning counties. New College sort of straddles uh, right in the middle of the of the two counties. The local lawmakers are all Republicans, and they've all supported DeSantis. And none of these lawmakers question this move at all. They, they all said that they support where the governor is going with this. Their stated reason really is that New College has struggled in recent years, which is true. Uh, the enrollment has not been where it needed to be to be a, a financially stable institution, even though it's very well regarded. Uh, you know, it is an honors college. They've had some issues in terms of meeting certain benchmarks that the state set. But I think also a lot of them are, are unwilling to go against uh, DeSantis, even if they wanted to. That was Sarasota Herald Tribune reporter Zach Anderson speaking with WUSF's Kathy Carter about Governor DeSantis's plan for New College of Florida. Coming up on Capitol Report, Florida's most recent catastrophic storms could mean Hurricane Andrew-style building code changes. Hey, have we built properly? Do we need to build differently going forward? And what was the site of the first school for black children in Florida is now vacant today, but there are those who want to see the memory preserved for future generations. When I look back, we have lost a lot of our historic places. Communities across Florida are considering how to move forward after Hurricanes Ian and Nicole left widespread flooding and damage. Along east-central Florida, New Smyrna Beach leaders unanimously voted this week to pause new residential development while they examine hurricane impacts. WMFE's Amy Green reports. Freddie Bolin lost a lot when Hurricane Ian dropped a monumental 21 inches of rain on New Smyrna Beach in less than 24 hours. In a flash, his home filled with three feet of water. It looked like uh, we were living in the middle of the uh, lake. (laughs) As he and his wife fled to higher ground, his wife fell and disappeared for a moment beneath the rushing water. Bolin feared he had lost her. Both made it to safety. If you want to see somebody break down, you know, 
and uh, and bring tears to your eyes real quick. That 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 did to me, and I've been struggling with it since. During Hurricane Ian, parts of New Smyrna Beach were inundated by as much as four feet of water. At least 215 residents were rescued by first responders. The coastal community is just south of Daytona Beach and sliced through by the Indian River Lagoon. Now, as residents contemplate repairs, city commissioners are taking a final vote on a proposal to halt new residential development for six months in certain flood zones. The measure applies to projects of 10 acres or greater involving houses, condos, and apartments. The moratorium is aimed at allowing time for a consultant to review the city's stormwater regulations and analyze how new residential development may have contributed to the historic flooding. Mayor Fred Cleveland says some residents believe the new development in this historically swampy state has left stormwater with no place to go, but other residents think outdated drainage systems in older neighborhoods are to blame and need updating. We want to go back to uh, the experts and say, hey, have we built properly? Do we need to build differently going forward? Do we need to have different set, a rule set than we have today? It's a remarkable step in Florida, where the economy is based in large part on growth and development, and developers are powerful political players. At the state level, inaction on climate change has prompted local governments to address warming temperatures, rising seas, and more damaging hurricanes. The legislature has struck back with measures aimed at diminishing local authority on issues like clean energy housing costs across Florida have skyrocketed, leading to an affordable housing shortage. Glenn Storch is a new Smyrna Beach resident and real estate attorney. He says the measure could face legal challenges. When they do this, they have to have a darn good reason for it. And that reason usually has to be something very important, very specific, and you have to have a plan to solve the problem. The moratorium is seeing widespread support. City commissioners voted unanimously in December to approve it during a first reading. Donna Athern is a New Smyrna Beach resident and chairwoman of the local Turnbull Creek Preservation Committee. She believes the moratorium is being closely watched as communities across Florida grapple with similar issues after Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. Yes, I would think other other developers are taking a look at the possibility that, that Florida's construction laws are going to change. They'll have to in order to accommodate these rising waters. She says every city in the state should be watching what happens in New Smyrna Beach. That was WMFE's Amy Green reporting. If you can, let's forget the latest Avatar movie for a moment, because it seems the real-world way of water, at least in the United States, is in Florida. The state's bordered by the Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean Sea, and Atlantic Ocean, and that's just the water you can see. This guy knows a lot about the unseen water that lies beneath the feet of virtually every Floridian. Casey McKinley, I currently serve as project director for the Woodville Cars Plane Project, or WKPP, as some people refer to us. For many years, the Woodville Karst Plain Project has been out to explore and map the vast Swiss cheese of water-filled limestone caves that lurk beneath the surface of northern Florida. These caves are big, very, very big. 
the big cave system, the Wakulla Cave system, runs from Leon County down through Wakulla County, and one of its discharge points is Wakulla Springs, and that's currently more than 38 miles in length, and that gets most of the attention anytime people are talking about cave diving and cave exploration in that area. But there are some lesser-known systems that are adjacent to or in proximity to the big system. And as we've speculated, going on more than 50 years since people started cave diving in the area, that maybe all this is connected. In fact, McKinley says the Wakulla cave system was already considered the nation's largest when it suddenly got even bigger. This past Saturday, two of our lead explorers were able to enter a passageway that we identify as a potential connection point. They pushed through a small restrictive area in the cave and came across a survey guideline from the Chips Hole system that they had established in 2016. The Chips Hole system, says McKinley, was long suspected to be part of the larger Wakulla cave system. And even beyond their sheer size, he says there's something else that makes them unique. And these systems are really, we kind of term them uh, almost freshwater superhighways. So they're quite large passages. They're conducting large volumes of fresh water in a very rapid manner. Virtually the entire Florida peninsula sits atop vast galleries of underground freshwater called the Floridan Aquifer. And even though the northern part of this structure stands out, McKinley says there is a literal link to the rest of the system. In fact, everything is connected, but the degree to which it's connected and the size of the connecting passageways is is something that kind of differentiates this from your typical subsurface limestone in that in this area that we're talking about, you've got exceptionally large, deep, and extensive cave systems. And that's not really the case as you kind of spread out and go into different areas of Florida. Regardless, whatever falls on the ground anywhere in Florida has the potential to find its way down into the gigantic stores of drinking water that lurk beneath our feet. So McKinley's team of scientists is relentlessly working to survey and map the entire system. What we want to do is give the resource managers good information to basically say, you may not have been aware of this a few years ago, but you're aware of it now. There are big superhighways of fresh water coming through this area that can transport, in some cases, worst case, you know, contaminants at a very rapid pace downstream if something like that should happen. And you should consider the pros and cons of what you're doing and how it could potentially impact downstream. Because as what's been learned already proves, somebody is always downstream. While we're on the subject of water, our partners at WUSF in Tampa and WMFE in Orlando recently hosted NPR's Next Generation Radio Project. That's a workshop for new journalists. They're working to highlight what it means to be a Floridian. This story comes from Julia Cooper, a student at the University of Florida. She interviewed Steve Friedman, a fisherman from Isla Mirada in the Florida Keys. He moved to Florida from Chicago more than two decades ago and fell in love with the state where he became 
became a backcountry charter fisherman. After a massive seagrass die-off in 2015, he became an environmental activist. He dedicates his life to protecting the state's waterways from pollution, and he believes that that threatens not only his livelihood, but Florida as he knows it. There's a rich history here with fishing. I still have the opinion today that the fishing industry and the charter industry is the backbone of the economy of the Florida Keys. And we're also the stewards of the sea. So we are the ones that are out there protecting it day in and day out because it's our livelihood. Hey, how's it going, Jason? My name is Captain Steve Friedman. And I'm based out of Isla Morada in the Florida Keys. And I am a backcountry fishing guide. That means I take fishing charters. I take people out in the Florida Bay and the Everglades National Park, mostly in that shallow water kind of fishing, site-oriented, environmentally adventurous and exciting. A little hook in them. And drop them out. We're seeing birds, we're seeing dolphins, we're seeing stingrays and sharks. It's uh, it's a whole experience, and, and the fishing is just the conduit to get there. I ended up working in the corporate world for about four years in a couple of different law firms as a paralegal. Wasn't enjoying what I was doing. All I was doing was looking forward to my next vacation, which was basically a, a fishing vacation. I see Florida as being a microcosm of the United States. You have just about every walk of life from the country in this state, whether it's your retirees, whether it's your agriculturalists, whether it's your hippy-dippy trippies, you, you run the gamut from tech companies to ma and pa bait shops. I think Florida is really known for its climate and to be an outdoorsman is to be a Floridian. One of the greatest revelations in the worst way was a massive seagrass die-off that we had in 2015. The Florida Bay and the Everglades National Park is the largest seagrass meadow in the world. I went looking for answers where I did a deep dive into um, the Central Everglades Restoration Plan, which is the largest restorative uh, project in the history of man. Everybody wants clean drinking water. Everybody wants to see a clean Everglades. Why were those projects moving so slow? And the answer is a lack of political will. I ran for a state representative in 2018 uh, as a Democrat against a three-time Republican incumbent. And my mantra was clean water. And I was running on that because everything was affected which was funny because I got criticized for only running on, you know, one issue. Now I lost and I got 47 to 48% of the vote. There are so many things that are going on in this state that revolve around being outside and enjoying the outdoors. To me, that's what it means to be a Floridian and to be a conscientious user of those areas is the ultimate Floridian so that future generations can enjoy it just like we are now 
That was Steve Friedman of Isla Mirada. He was interviewed by Julia Cooper as part of Next Generation Radio, an NPR program hosted recently by WUSF and WMFE. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, the site of the first school for black children in Central Florida is up for grabs. In March, the Orange County School District will sell the 100 acres of land on which it once stood. WMFE's Danielle Pryor reports some residents want the town of Eatonville to regain ownership over the historic site, while a developer plans to turn it into mixed-use housing. Vera King can remember the sound of kids going to school at Hungerford. She remembers the sounds of bells heard from her grandmother's house. That first bell was for the kids to get up and do their chores. The second bell was for them to go to breakfast. And the third bell was for them to go to class. King's in her late 80s now. She's lived most of her life in Eatonville, just a few blocks away from where the school once was. She was a student at the school first and later a secretary and bookkeeper. And they were very good years. It hurts now to pass that lot and see that space because it had so much history. The school began with a donation of 300 acres of land from a northern white philanthropist. It focused on things like domestic work and agriculture, along with having a liberal arts curriculum. UCF history professor Scott French says the school fell into disrepair during World War II. An effort to renew the school followed. There were conversations with Mary McLeod Bethune and Bethune uh, University Uh, I'm not sure if it was called Bethune-Cookman at that time, but the idea was that they might create a satellite campus in Eatonville. That did not come to fruition, and so a decision was made to transfer the property to Orange County Public Schools. During the pandemic, the school, which had already been shut down in the early 2000s, was demolished. All that's left is 100 acres of mostly barren land where the school once stood. Orange County Public Schools has already started the process to sell the land to a developer that would turn it into mixed housing for local residents. But John Beecham, a lifelong Eatonville resident, would like to see the land return to the town of Eatonville, turn back into an educational center inspired by the work of another Hungerford alum. But if I had to, like, wave a magic wand, I would see a Zora Neale Hurston Museum. Zora talks about a folklore center in her books. Author Zora Neale Hurston considered Eatonville her home and attended the Hungerford School. Beecham says he's already gathered over 1,200 signatures on a petition, which he'll present to the Eatonville Town Council during their next meeting. He says young people need to understand and remember the history of that site, not just live on top of it. I love St. Augustine, but St. Augustine is not the only treasure. Our kids are getting on buses and driving miles and miles away, uh, and parents are worried all day long that their kids are on their way to St. Augustine and on the way back. Well, we have that treasure right here. Back in her home just a few miles away, Hungerford alum Vera King says, simply put, she'd like to see another vocational school there. But if it's not a school, it should at least preserve the history of Hungerford. It becomes a part of you that you'd want to tell other people about. You want to impress on them the 
importance of maintaining. Because when I look back, we have lost a lot of our historic places. Ultimately, it'll be up to the school district and Eatonville Council to decide the fate of the Hungerford site. If the council approves rezoning the land for the project, OCPS will finalize its sale to a developer for $14 million. In a statement, the proposed developer says its plans include some acres dedicated to a cultural site. Hungerford advocates say that's far less than the 100 acres the school once was. I'm Danielle Pryor in Eatonville. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Kathy Carter, Amy Green, Julia Cooper, and Danielle Pryor. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Please join us again next week for more reports from the state capitol. Capitol Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.